remind you all that the event has uh, been organised by SPICE. Now, SPICE seminars are to provide members and their staff and the Parliament staff an opportunity to hear from expert witnesses uh, and key speakers, actually, on, on policy issues and to improve all of our understanding and in support of parliamentary business. Now, the cause of the energy cost crisis can be linked, as we all know, to various factors. The rapid economic recovery following the pandemic led to an initial fuel price rises late last year and then the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, which has contributed hugely to the driving up the price of, of gas to record highs in Europe. The result has been that home heating bills uh, that were anticipated to be at least three or four times higher than this, this year than last. In July this year, the Net Zero Energy and Transport Committee, which I convene, published a report on its short inquiry into energy price rises. There were clear messages from this inquiry for a pandemic-level response to the crisis. Uh, the committee identified a need for the Scottish and UK governments working separately and together to provide more immediate targeted financial support. Uh, for those struggling with their fuel bills. And the committee also recognised the need to accelerate medium and long-term plans and strategy to reduce future exposure. Uh, these are the issues uh, which we look to in, uh, look at this morning, and I'm delighted uh, to welcome our invited speakers. There's both professors, so I can't say professor and, and get away because they'll both jump in, but uh, Stuart on my right is a professor of carbon capture and storage uh, at the University of um, Edinburgh. Forty years of research uh, and experience in energy with a focus on innovating new approaches uh, to oil and gas and radioactive waste, carbon capture and storage. And Matthew Hannan is a professor of sustainable business, uh, energy business and policy at the University of Strathclyde. Matthew's research examines business models, policies and technologies necessary to accelerate the transition to a socially equitable net zero economy. Now, the main part of the summary, I'm going to ask the uh, speakers to respond to three questions exploring the structural causes of the energy cost crisis. They'll have about five minutes each uh, to respond to these questions. And after the main discussion, there'll be an opportunity for the audience to ask questions. So we'll do the questions first and then go to it. Now, I don't think either of you have been to any of the uh, committees that I'm at. I usually say to people that if you're going to exceed your time, I waggle my pen. But you, as you're both sat next to me, I'll poke you with the pen when, when you've got to the end of your five minutes to allow uh, your colleague to have a chance to uh, come in. So uh, I think, first of all, uh, Matthew would go to you. What are the key structural characteristics of our energy system that have contributed to the energy cost crisis. Okay, well, thank you, Edward. And thank you to Spice for having me along this morning. Uh, it's good to see you all. Um, so if I maybe just summarise, and during my allotted time, I'll try and expand upon these. If we can just split the structural issues between demand side and supply side, what, what do I mean by that? Well, let's think kind of beyond the meter. That's demand side. Anything above that uh, is supply. So the big problem is that we have very old and inefficient housing stock. Um, the most efficient is, is typically our private rented sector. We're also addicted to gas heating, fundamentally addicted. About 83% of our homes in Scotland are connected to the gas grid. And on the supply side, um, we 
We have a continued reliance on gas for electricity generation. Whilst Scotland has made uh, significant gains in, in reducing its generation of gas electricity, um, we, we still rely on a UK grid where gas is, is still a significant part of that, about 40% give or take on the average, average day of the year. Um, we also have made slow progress outside of Scotland, and remember we're part of that UK grid and supply network, um, on bringing on alternatives beyond offshore wind. Now, whilst Scotland has a fantastic pipeline of offshore wind, and Scott Wind has taken the headlines of, of late, um, the UK continues to, uh, UK government continues to place a moratorium um, in, in England and Wales on, um, on onshore wind, uh, effectively planning, planning ban, um, and that is obviously reducing the amount of of onshore renewables that we can bring in and that we can start to displace gas with. And finally, we continue to peg wholesale price of electricity to gas through something called the merit order, which we can maybe discuss a little later. Um, and so our, our renewable power is pegged to that spiralling cost of gas, which is a real headache for us. So if I maybe just in the, in the two or three minutes I have left, just to focus on, on the demand side a little bit. Um, we have not just some of the most inefficient uh, housing uh, in the UK, but the UK has some of the most inefficient housing in Europe. If you take the average um, five-hour period in winter, where it's zero degrees outside and 20, you're trying to heat to 20 degrees in the home, every five hours you'll lose three degrees. In Germany, they'll just lose one degree. We're losing heat three times faster than the average home in Germany. And that is a real headache when our housing stock is uh, homes some of the, uh, increasingly, some of the most vulnerable people who are really struggling to, to pay these bills and cost of living crisis and finance raging. So we have extremely old housing stock as well. About one in five of our homes are, are built pre-1919 and, and desperately require uh, retrofitting. And on, on that basis, we are actually making very slow progress as, as, as the UK as a whole, but also in terms of Scotland in actually improving the energy, energy efficiency of our homes. We've made some significant policy mistakes in the past, particularly the energy company obligation, but other market failures, if we look at the, the rental sector, which I know has been a big, uh, big focus for, for, um, for Scottish Parliament of, of late, um, if we compare the private sector versus the social sector, you will expect that 6% of private sector homes will be energy performance certificate band F or G versus just 1% in the social sector. You're six times more likely to be in, in the most inefficient um, uh, type, type of housing. So we have, a, we, we have an old, a leaky, inefficient housing stock that's addicted to gas, which we are not moving quickly enough on in order to retrofit and to improve the housing stock there. And that is a fundamental issue for all of the other critical problems that our society and economy faces, whether that's health, whether that's the ability to put food on the table. Because as we know, all of us in this room are consumers. We've seen where energy bills are now. And for trying to reduce that, those, those energy costs by 20, 30 percent, uh, as, as record uh, energy prices bite, opens up a whole host of solutions to, to addressing these, these much broader systemic problems. So I have to say it comes back time and time again to, to housing and how we are moving so slowly on this. And if I just have a quick word in the last 30 seconds is on owner-occupiers, which have a tip, typically have a similar inefficiency record as private rented sector. So actually the ability to make decisions on your home, lagging the loft, putting in double glazing, isn't enough 
It clearly isn't enough when you look at the data, and that actually we need much greater incentives, whether that's green mortgages or reduction on, on stamp duty. Thank you. And, and he kept spot on time. Well done. Um, that's absolutely perfect. Uh, interesting point on, on Germany. Of course, Germany starts with much lower temperatures than us, so therefore they, they've been thinking about insulation uh, long before we did. Um, and I don't think we should forget that. Sorry. Over to you. Okay. Thanks very much, uh, convener. Um, so I'll agree with everything that uh, Matthew's just said, I think. So that's uh, no contention at all that we've got a very old housing stock. We've also got fairly inefficient uh, commercial buildings as well. And so we just basically shovel heat in slightly faster than the heat leaks out. And that's not a sustainable or correct way to do it. And that, we've known that problem for 30 years or more. And we seems persistently unable to uh, solve that on a large scale. So the approach to decisions made by individual house owners or house uh, house residents uh, needs to be much more on the uh, on the benefits for me sort of approach rather than the financial calculation. Because I think a lot of research shows that uh, people make major changes to the housing when they're either buying it or selling it. And so those are the intervention points. When people move into a new house, that's when they're more prone to improving their insulation, heating system, re relining the windows or whatever it is. So, you know, there are lessons there uh, which are understood. I also then want to f focus slightly differently, I guess, then on uh, where our energy comes from. Uh, so at the moment, when people talk about energy, uh, often they mean electricity. But I deliberately want to talk about electricity, which is about a quarter of our energy, and then heating, which is about half of our energy use. And as Matthew said, then over, we're overwhelmingly uh, supplied by gas, something like 83% 80, of households get supplied by gas. So the, what we've done as part of the UK procurement and the UK market is we've persistently chosen to go for cheap, cheap and available. And we've managed to do that because in the 1650s we discovered coal in Scotland and we've mined coal and we could get by because that was cheap and available and we could get by by also storing coal, storing energy in a big visible pile next to the power station when we invented power stations so we didn't have any need to invest in energy storage. And then as coal uh, passed through, then we discovered gas. And as part of the UK, then we built lots of gas fuel power plants. And that's why something like 40% uh, of our electricity comes from gas. So we're linked into that gas supply. And if anything goes wrong with that gas supply, then it impacts both heating and electricity, which is where we are now. But with gas supply, we didn't need to build any storage there either because we had our own natural gas fields in the southern part of the North Sea. So if we're a bit short of gas, all we need to do is turn the tap on a bit faster. But those gas fields are now well on their way to depletion, something like perhaps only 25% of the original gas remains. So that flexibility and that increase of uh, production isn't really available anymore. And so thanks to the Norwegians, uh, we now import an awful lot of gas from Norway, so something like a third of the UK gas comes in through St Fergus and gets distributed round. but we're still very vulnerable to that international price and we have no buffer uh, because the amount of uh, 
the amount of storage of gas in the UK was historically about uh, eight days worth of supply. And then, uh, for whatever reason, uh, the government and the Treasury decided to, to support the closure of the rough gas field offshore of South East England. That took us down to about five or six days' supply, which is where we are now. And contrast that with Germany or Netherlands or France, which have like 100 days of supply. So what's been going on in this summer period is they've charged up their gas supplies for the winter by re-injecting gas into underground gas field storage. And we're still stuck buying gas on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's a bit like we've continually decided to have a pay-as-you-go contract with your phone, whereas other people have taken out long-term subscriptions, which are much cheaper and much more reliable, and you get much better services with those. So that's one large structural thing which uh, needs to be examined. And that's part of the UK market, of course, not just Scotland. But if you ask me where is the storage in Scotland, then we're not very well endowed with potential. There is no storage for gas at the moment. Uh, there's potential to develop storage in salt caverns, engineering salt caverns underneath the Irish Sea or underneath the North Sea east of Aberdeen. But these are all, you know, these are multi-year big engineering projects if we want to solve this structural problem about tunnelling through price pikes, which is what we're trying to do now. So that, and then the second thing is, uh, so that's gas, that's storage, and there is very little storage of gas. Um, the electricity system, the network, then our electricity network has basically been inherited from centralised generation based around coal fields. So that's why Longanet was where it was, that's why Kukenzi was where it was, Peterhead was where, because that's where the gas comes onshore. Uh, but that distribution system is used to sending out electricity from centralised generation, whereas what we're asking that to do now is have lots of distributed generation, let's say in Scotland, around the coastline of Scotland, and then feed electricity in. And that electricity system is not fit for that purpose. You can't send enough volts fast enough through, that, through those wires in uh, most of northern Scotland. So connecting in Scotland strategically is going to take a lot longer than I think we've anticipated. We're all familiar with the Bewley to Denny timescale, and we can't afford to have 10 of those inquiries and timescales going on in the future. So we need to find faster ways of connecting and faster, better ways of delivering. Um, and then just going to the last point, then uh, I think we're also going to face a, you know, the crisis bit for many people not in the room is going to be keeping warm this winter. So we're effectively going back to 1920s level of, uh, of type of no heating for many people. And so uh, is it possible for a government like Scots government to set up regional warm centres or warm centres in town where we can reopen libraries, we can run community centres during the day, and we can staff those libraries and community centres so that they become warm places where people can go, because we haven't really had any cold weather this winter yet, and we're just gambling about what's going to happen. Nobody has any idea what the weather's going to do, of course. So if there's a two weeks of minus 10, then we've got a really serious problem of people's welfare and even survival, I think, and we should actually be thinking about what we're going to do to mitigate that in the immediate term. So is that five minutes? Uh, I was being generous, and, and, and I was interested in what you were saying, so, so that's fine. And thank you for mentioning the Bewley to Denny power line, which, as a surveyor, took up five years of my life, um, and, and it was a long project. Now, 
I'm afraid you're going to have to go first on the next question as well, which is, what are the best solutions to securing supply and ensuring affordability in the short to medium term? Okay, yeah, thank you. And I think Stuart and I have probably started to hint towards some of these. But uh, if, if I can just begin with, much of what we need to do, we should have done last year. Okay, so we're already playing catch-up. So many of the things I started writing in the short term, <laughs> I was thinking could have maybe been in the medium term if we'd moved a little quicker. And I say we, I'm using we as the, the, the UK here. Um, so, so I'm afraid I've thrown a lot of stuff into the short term. Um, number one, our, our fuel poverty focused energy company obligation or the, the energy supplier obligation, which is an obligation on suppliers to tackle fuel poverty. Um, the, the funding that we have attributed to that is, is simply not fit for purpose in terms of the scale of the challenge. And, if, and you can look at where we were in terms of insulating, and Chris Stark made this point in his letter to um, Jeremy Hunt yesterday, the Climate Change Committee, which I, I implore you all to read, um, made the point exactly, and um, we have in previously, is that back in 2013, we were insulating, give or take, about 1.3 million homes um, through the, the energy company obligation, and that fell in 2013 down to about 228,000. So, you know, we, we, have, we have shrunk during a time when energy bills, have to remember before this energy crisis, energy bills were creeping up. So that's the first thing. We need to, we need to expand the, the, the funding available for the fuel poor. And I think we also need to broaden this pot out because it's very, very strict in terms of what, what it can be spent on and who, who it can be spent on. We need to look at those people who are fluctuating between I'm fuel poor and I'm not fuel poor, very much on that sort of just about managing threshold. Um, number two, uh, support for clean heat. So obviously a really big part of, of uh, Scottish Government's programme uh, of work. Um, I, I mean, I, I have to say I was a little concerned to hear some of the, the cuts that, that were mentioned earlier this week. I understand we're in, in very tough times, but um, reported uh, around sort of £45 million, given that uh, demand w was lower. But if you actually just look at where we need to be by 2030, and the Climate Exchange looked, uh, was estimating that around 600,000 heat pumps need to be installed in Scotland by 2030, um, that's on the back of the, the, the uh, government's targets. That translates to about 75,000 per annum. That's 20 times the installation rate of today, which is between three and 4,000 heat pumps. So the question is, if we're shrinking the budget there, are we going to have to do more next year, the year after? When, when do we do it? That's the big question. Number three, I'm calling this the energy crisis finance paradox, but if you bear with me, I'll try and explain it in 20 seconds, which is, the cost of living crisis is, means that our appetite for reducing our energy demand, not just the lights and gas, but our, our fuel in our cars, has never been greater. Yet our capacity to draw together our funds to pay, to make the investments to, to deliver those reductions has never been lower. And you have to consider it's not just the cost of other inflationary um, uh, impacts, food, for instance, it's also the soaring cost of finance. So we've seen mortgages rocket. And we've seen home improvement loans, the interest rates rocket. And so our ability to make these investments to reduce our energy demand has never been lower. So government, I, I think government through, in particular through its uh, uh, investment in infrastructure banks, needs to make this funding available and finance available. I mean, Home Energy Scotland is a fantastic resource, one I've used personally. And I would implore that we, we expand that and make that as easy to access as possible for as long a period as possible, um, because that's the way we're going to get through this particular crisis. I have two more points to raise very briefly. 
why are we not doing a nation, nationwide energy efficiency awareness campaign? I haven't heard a good reason yet. And uh, again, in Chris Stark's uh, letter, £15 million, I think, was government's own estimates about what this would cost. Um, if you consider how much we spent on COVID awareness, about half a billion pounds, and some of the, the numbers they crunched yesterday, very, very interesting. If we encourage just 10% of homes to reduce their boiler flow temperature, that's the little knob on your boiler, down from maybe five to three, 10%, that would save us 28 million pounds, not just on our energy bills, but on what we're spending on the energy price guarantee. 28 million pounds. The, the awareness campaign would pay for itself twofold if it just achieved that one thing. So we, we must consider that. And the final point I wanted to raise is a real big one. The support that we've put in place around the energy price guarantee, which is not a cap of two and a half thousand pounds, it's a cap on our unit rate of gas and electricity, essentially is a very regressive measure. What we're doing is enabling the highest demand homes to have a greater pot of subsidized energy or a greater amount of subsidized energy than the lowest demand homes. Now, some of those highest demand homes, they may be a family of five or six. They may have particular uh, health issues where they require uh, energy intensive um, um, equipment and what have you. But also they may have a hot tub in, in the back garden and a Tesla on the front, on the front driveway and, and maybe you know, in, in a particularly luxurious part of town. Some of the funding that was, that was put in place through Rishi Sunak in the summer was much more progressive, much more targeted. Um, the problem is, is it's not being drawn down quickly enough. And I'll just end on this. Uh, BBC reported uh, this a, a few days back, and I'm seeing this through my own work with South Seeds in the south of Glasgow as chair and trustee. The, f the vouchers that have been made available, the £400 vouchers for prepayment meter customers, um, only about half of these have actually been cashed in by prepayment. And we have to remember that prepayment customers are normally those who are least able to afford them. Uh, interesting points. Um, I, I would just say as well, perhaps we, we can consider whether we've got the trainees in, in train to install, to do all these installations. Are we training enough people? And, and maybe we can even discuss later yeah. whether it's, it, it's having prepayment meters at a different rate mm. is penalizing those pe the people who need penalizing less. We can come to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Right, thank you very much. Uh, so again, I agree with uh, all of that, except that we shouldn't have done all this last year. We should have started doing this 20, 30 years ago. No, it's, uh, it's a long-term problem, which we just kept on ducking until there's a crisis crisis. So the first thing, again, I'll totally agree with Matthew, is that uh, there's no information going out to people about how to behave in this energy crisis, you know, because many people have lost that intergenerational connections about what their granny used to do. And so we basically, you know, I've had nothing through my door, nothing on email from the council or anything about how do I turn my heating down one degree, perhaps? Do I, how do I block up the drafts? Some really obvious things to do, which can save an awful lot of cold coming into your house. And uh, also, I think we can foresee that if a lot of people do decide they can't afford the heat and turn the heat off, are we, go are we going to face an epidemic of frozen pipes if we have a week of 10 minus 10? What are we going to, how do we inform people how to reduce that possibility? And then if they are, pipes are frozen, do we actually have 
enough plumbers and staff around to actually help people unfreeze their pipes uh, and fix any bursts. You know, so these are predictable types of problems if, uh, that we might be looking at just now. On the cost of electricity and gas, I'm quite interested that we're still stuck with this uh, pricing system for energy where we price the energy units on the last amount of energy which we need to fulfill the whole supply to the country. So uh, if the last piece of gas we need to supply anybody, everybody comes in at £200 a, a kilowatt hour, that's what the price of the whole previous lot is going to be. And that seems a very strange system to me, and that's based on the variable prices of fossil fuel. But as we go for, through, and we're more or less at this tipping point now, so that more and more of our energy is supplied by renewable sources, where there is no cost of generation, effectively. You've built the facility, and actually letting the windmill turn and sending the electricity down the wire has no actual extra cost. So we need to change the whole energy pricing system to reflect that in the UK. So it's a little bit like, this is an analogy which isn't totally correct, but it's a little bit like if I go to the supermarket and I buy an apple, a banana, and then a bottle of wine, the whole lot at the moment is priced on that bottle of wine price. Whereas actually, I just want to stack up the price with the small items and then decide if I want to buy the last bit or not. Because there's no incentive then to save that 5% at the end, that most expensive 5%. So we should be engaging with the UK government uh, to try and change that whole pricing system to be more suitable for uh, a renewable energy, a zero marginal cost future. And then the other type of thing I'm interested in is how we price energy for the people who don't have very much money. Matthew's just talked about uh, pay-as-you-go meters, which are acknowledged to be the most expensive way of buying electricity. So that's the wrong way around. So in Scotland, is it possible to work with our energy supply companies to say that uh, people maybe get a 1,000 kilowatt hours of free electricity to start with? So we get a free allowance, or that could be targeted to people who are on pay-as-you-go meters. I don't, you know, that's clearly a feasible analysis to do. And then the rest of us actually pay more the more we use, because at the moment it's the other way around. The more energy I use effectively, the cheaper it gets per unit. And this is a crazy way of pricing socially. So we should look at trying to invert that price structure. Um, what else have I got? And then the pace of uh, the pace of refitting. Matthew talked about uh, uh, heat pumps. You know, there's a lot can be a lot involved in a heat pump. You can, might need to change your radiators as well. You know, the actual cost of the heat pump could be only half the cost of fitting the house and renewing that. That's why there's a problem. But the pace of change is tiny. And I also then want to say, let's look at what we use in motor fuel, in road travel. We don't have a crisis in that right now, except the price has rocketed up. But the price of fitting electricity, the pace, sorry, of affecting electricity charging points, to me as a consumer, appears glacial. You know, I, I can see two or three charging points in my daily life, and I can see that they've got cars parked on them. So we've got about 3 or 4% of penetration of electric vehicles, are we really going to get enough charging points, thousands, tens of thousands more charging points by 2030? This seems to be a very slow pace, and I think we should be. And again, that's an investment for taking the strain off the fossil fuel system and putting the strain onto our own resilient 
domestic generation where we retain the value by generating our own wind offshore and onshore and our own tidal power and our own PV. So I favour that's very much the way to go. And I guess as a corollary, I do not favour just drilling for more oil and gas like the Westminster government seem to be advocating because drilling for more oil and gas is just really investing in the past. That's going to take three to five years to come on stream. It does nothing at all to change the price just now. Thank you. And Stuart, I'm going to come to you next, but uh, just before I do, uh, to just give you a chance uh, to think about it, of course, you could take your car to Akhnashin to the charging point there that's been there for yes. two and a half years, and it's not connected to the national grid. So there's, there's a free charging point that's always available, but of no use. So the, the third question <laughs> is, how should we address the impacts of the energy crisis, particularly in its effect on the cost of living, whilst ensuring progress towards the long-term net zero targets? Okay, uh, so firstly, to start with the end, I think we have to continue with the long-term net zero targets. There's, this is not an excuse to give up on that. And we also have to then take on board the analysis by folks like the Committee on Climate Change who claim that investing in net zero is uh, actually an investment in the future and that will grow new businesses, new economy and that will create growth. So there are positive aspects economically to investing in net zero. But what do you actually do about that? And these are medium to long-term propositions. These are sort of three, five, ten-year propositions. And again, I'll just reiterate what I previously said. I think we're well, very well endowed, abnormally well endowed in Scotland with lots and lots of renewable energy. And that's familiar with onshore wind, offshore wind, tidal and PV. So we should carry on investing in that. But we should also be aware that we have invested cheaply in that at the moment. So we do not have any backup for the intermittency. We're basically relying on the rest of the UK grid for when the wind doesn't blow, some, from somewhere else comes the electricity because we don't generate that gas-powered or fossil fuel-powered electricity in Scotland. We've only got Peterhead as a power station, and that's not supplying the intermittency where there's a decrease in wind power. So one way of doing that in the future is going to be investing in storage, and that can be storage by building pump storage like uh, Loch Ness, round Loch Ness for short-duration storage for hours at a time of uh, shaving off peak demand of electricity. But we're also going to need, I think, to take uh, much more of a lesson from uh, Germany, France, Netherlands, and maybe a bit from Norway, in that uh, what we need also to do is lay in storage which is going to work for weeks at a time. Because if we're going to move, if we're going to move either to more, well, to more electricity and quite possibly to more hydrogen to replace methane as a decarbonised fuel, we need to generate that hydrogen in advance of using it. And I just remind you that right now we haven't needed to bother because we just turn on the gas tap and more gas comes out of the ground. And that's not going to happen with hydrogen. So with hydrogen, we've been researching on how we're going to manage that. And the good news is that, yes, it looks like you can store large, very large quantities of hydrogen in engineered salt caverns underground. And we can also store very large quantities of hydrogen in depleted oil and gas fields. So we can repurpose some of those oil and gas fields, particularly close to southeastern uh, eastern England, to be hydrogen stores rather than methane stores. And that's going to take five or ten years to do, but that will give us security 
and resilience, which we've not priced in properly at all. We've never re we've just bothered about cheap all the time, and we've not bothered about the resilience and security for multi-week and even multi-month interruptions of price. So those are the types of investment I think we should be trying to make into the supply side of the future. Thank you very much. And Matthews, now is your chance to say that you agree with everything that Stuart uh, said, <laughs> as he did every time you started, but over to you. Thank you. And of course, I agree with everything Stuart said. Um, so yeah, I think maybe if I try and take this more onto the demand side, but some of these decisions will be about um, not just what we do in our homes, but what we do with our vehicles, also whether it's micro-generation, more, more broadly, the type of food we eat. You know, the, there are, we are quickly moving into a space where you and I are going to have to make some tough decisions about how we live our lives. Um, I mean, the, you know, what you have in your breakfast roll of a morning. You know, th this is the kind of, the kind of decision-making. In fact, we're speaking to um, a colleague from Oxford University, Hannah Ritchie, who some of you may know of our world in data. Uh, we asked, you know, what are the kind of two big three things that we're all each going to have to do? You know, and number one was what you eat. You know, number two is sort of what you drive. Uh, you know, and three is just don't fly. So, and all these things, I don't know about you, make me feel uneasy. You know, I like, uh, whilst I'm actively trying to reduce these things, I like meat, okay, occasionally. I like, I like going to another country. But, but we, that's not going to get us to net zero, okay? So there are difficult and tricky individual decisions that we need to make. So why not let us begin where there are clear climate and economic win-wins. Now, I mean, energy efficiency is an obvious one. Putting LED light bulbs in here is, is a, you know, an excellent start. Double glazing, an excellent start. These decisions, whether you believe in climate change or not, okay, I mean, I'm hoping most of you do, but whether you actually, it's still an economically obvious decision to take. The second is actually understanding that consumer decision-making process. Most of the way, the way in which, I mean, press my timer there. Um, Sorry, I'm tired. <laughs> most of the decisions that we treat the consumer as a perfectly economically uh, rational entity that make economically optimal decisions. I don't know about you, you, but in my home, most of the decisions we make probably are suboptimal because we're peculiar humans. We make odd decisions. Emotions get in the way. Social relations, our relationship with other people and place has a big bearing on the types of decisions that we make about where we go on holiday, what we eat, um, uh, you know, in terms of what the decisions that we make and the changes we make in our homes. So a big part of the work that we're doing through the UK Energy Research Centre is understanding how social relations impact upon energy retrofit decision making. And we're studying three cities, including Glasgow, some fascinating findings that are coming to the fore, talk maybe more about in the Q&A. The third big one is we need to move away from not only individual uh, decision-making, treating individuals as purely economically rational entities, but thinking much more about um, uh, the community or social impacts of individual decision-making. What I choose to eat, how I choose to fly, what I, how, how I uh, improve my home doesn't just impact me, it has a social impact, it has a broader impact. And that is the very basis of the, the fundamental science of climate change. So we need to see our, our economic policy, our politics start to reflect that, that we are in effect, what I do impacts you. I'm aware of that and I'm, I'm trying to correct that, but I don't see, I feel we've moved away in recent decades, away from that sense of this social contract and this communal action for communal benefit. And I really fundamentally worry that if we keep treating people as individual islands, we're never going to get to net zero. 
the final point I'll, I'll raise, I think, is just a point on that, is one way to actually crystallise that is looking at supporting community action. Now, community energy, big focus for Scottish Government, um, and I'm, I'm very pleased to see that, but this is something where I think in the context of big local authority cuts, record energy company uh, profit margins and, and uh, revenues, what can we do to support communities to take communal action to deliver communal benefit and start to channel some of that funding away from the pockets of, of um, multinational shareholders that are above and beyond what is deemed ethical and acceptable to support um, communities. And I'll just give one example. I won't name the, the organization, but I'm aware of a, a community group in the Highlands which has taken some community benefit payments from onshore wind farms. Um, they've used they get a tremendous uh, significant sum from this They've used this to build affordable housing estates, not just ha a house, housing estates, and a medical centre, which has been leased to the NHS. I won't mention exactly who. But that gives you a scale of what communities can achieve and the community benefit that can be, that can be captured, if we get serious about it. Thank you.